Greetings, everyone, and welcome to our weekly podcast on legal issues in the post-COVID world. My name is Gil Porter, a partner at Haynes & Boone and chair of our COVID-19 task force, and today is Thursday, June 25. Today, we're going to look at the current state of trade relations between the U.S. and China, how those relations have complicated momentum of investment activity between the two countries, and how the COVID-19 pandemic has added further headwinds to that momentum. Our special guest today is my colleague, Lisa Mark. Lisa splits her time between Dallas, Texas, and China, where she heads our Shanghai office. Lisa, who's qualified in the U.S. and Hong Kong, is deeply familiar with the legal environments in the U.S., China, and Hong Kong, and handles a variety of corporate securities matters, joint ventures, and cross-border investments. I'm going to participate in today's conversation as well, wearing two of my other hats. That is co-chair of our Global Projects Practice Group, and as an attorney who for many years has helped guide clients in a number of cross-border transactions in Hong Kong, China, and Southeast Asia. Nathan Koppel, our head of media relations, will continue his role as moderator for this series. I will turn this over to Nathan in a moment, but first, our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only, is not intended to be legal advice, and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. Moreover, by its very nature, the topics we discuss on these podcasts will be fast-moving and subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. That's it for me, Nathan. I'll turn it over. Many thanks, Gil. I just want to start today by, by recommending a webinar on today's topic that features Lisa Gill and their colleague Ed Lebo. It offers an incredibly detailed overview of U.S.-China trade relations and the investment trends between the two two countries and also the complex and fast-changing regulatory environment that's impacting the U.S.-China relationship. Um, That webinar is now available on Haynes & Boone's COVID-19 resource page, which is at haynesboone.com. So, Lisa, I want to get started today uh, by having you, if you could, please provide an o- a broad overview of the current geopolitical status between the U.S. and China. Sure, Nathan. Thanks. Um, currently, as most of you will know, the tensions between the U.S. and China uh, is continuing to escalate. Uh, the two countries are more and more taking Uh, increasingly protectionist stance against each other. Um, And over the past few years, uh, both U.S. and China has adopted a series of rules and regulations that contribute to uh, what we call a trend of decoupling. Um, So we're we're seeing um, a few categories shall we say, of what is happening. First, of course, is the trade war that most everybody knows about. Um, The second, of course, is the geopolitical tensions uh, related to Hong Kong, Taiwan, Xinjiang. Um, But more importantly, uh, as vis-a-vis the effects on international commerce and international investment trends, are uh, focuses in the U.S. on regulatory uh, tightening on export control regulations and also the focus of investments 
uh, insensitive personal data and critical infrastructure and critical technology on the U.S. side. Uh, on the China side, you have a more nuanced regulatory response because there is a tension between the need for foreign investment, particularly nowadays during COVID or after COVID, whereby uh, the Chinese economy is very, very hungry for foreign investment capital to help it weather the economic e effects of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, as well as a reactionary um, protectionist stance whereby uh, the Chinese regulatory response is more geared towards a little bit of a tit-for-tat situation. So you see that both sides are drawing back and trying to brace. Um, the Chinese has more of a nuanced response on the regulatory side um, because of the, of the uh, tension between the economic uh, requirements. Um, but it's certainly not going in the right direction, I would say. Well, I'm sure all this has had a dampening effect on cross-border investments. Can you share uh, some of the current trend lines regarding cross-border investments? Sure, Nathan. Um, when we're looking at investment trends, we usually uh, look at it in two separate segments. The first segment is uh, – direct FDI investment, and what I mean by that is foreign direct investments. Um, and the second segment is venture capital investments. So uh, venture capital investments are usually uh, more early stage company, more technology focused. Uh, foreign direct investments um, are bigger investment deals, potentially greenfield projects. Um, and so we would look at what the investment trends are between kind of U.S. FDI investments into China and China in FDI investments into U.S. And then uh, separately look at what the venture capital investment trends are uh, on the two directions. Uh, what you see for the FDI investment is the U.S. investment into China uh, was relatively stable. There are bumps along the road, um, but essentially there was no huge spikes. There were no huge drops. Whereas for the China FDI into the U.S., you see a very large spike uh, going up uh, in 2016, starting in 2014, uh, culminating in 2016 to 17 at 45 billion US dollars, and then having a huge drop to about $5 billion in 2018-19. Um, looking then at the venture capital investments, the trend is reversed. You are seeing um, that the uh, US investments uh, into China's venture capital scene uh, had a huge spike and then a sharp drop, uh, whereas the China investment into the U.S. venture capital scene um, had also a spike uh, and a drop, but not as pronounced. Um, and we allude that to two different reasons. 
Um, the U.S. investment into China venture capital is mostly because there was a massive expansion of the venture capital high technology industry in China. So there were a lot of opportunities. Um, but then there was a sharp contraction within the industry. It's more, much more commercial driven. Whereas the um, Chinese investment into uh, U.S. venture capital high technology scene uh, suffered a, a contraction partly because of regulatory tightening um, where the U.S. Uh, had adopted an amendment uh, to CFIUS uh, called FIRMA um, and essentially had significantly raised the regulatory burden for these types of investments. So you're, you're seeing strange trend lines. Lisa, that was great. Thank you very much. I'm going to now pivot to ask you about China-focused M&A. What do the trend, trend lines look like in that, in that area? Um, that trend line is even more interesting. Um, in 2008 and 2009, after the global financial crisis, uh, China went around the world um, and literally tried to buy up as much assets as they could because they were much less focused or affected by the global financial crisis, which is essentially a uh, financial structure banking crisis. Um, and because uh, the renminbi doesn't float publicly, um, and because there is a foreign exchange control, the effects of the global financial crisis vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, uh, as compared to the U.S. and the rest of the developed world, is relatively small. There's still effect, but it's relatively smaller. Um, this time around, after COVID hit, uh, what we're seeing is a lot of governments, both in Europe and U.S., were very afraid that Chinese money would then see the opportunity and literally come in and sort of buy high technology assets because that's what they did last time around. But um, according to the latest data, that did not happen. Um, for the first five months of 2020, as compared to the same period in, in 2019, um, new outbound deal-making by Chinese firms is down 71% in volume and 88% in value, uh, according to a, a very recent uh, kind of survey result from Rhodium. Um, the average monthly transaction value dropped from a peak of more than $20 billion in 2016 to 12 in 2018 and a mere $1.3 in 2020. Uh, and in, in diving into some of the reasons why this is happening, uh, I think the, the Chinese company's stance as they emerge from COVID uh, is significantly different than um, what they looked at back in 08 and 09. Um, the Chinese company have a lot more debt. Um, the, the regulatory positioning is much more protective. Um, there is much higher limitation on um, export or, or uh, kind of exporting of capital. Uh, the regulatory hoops that they have to jump through to kind of 
uh, send money offshore for foreign investment is much higher. Uh, so I, I personally was surprised at how we're not seeing a massive amount of cross-border investment. On the other hand, the strange contrast was that U.S. or international M&A into China uh, kept right on rolling. Um, essentially, uh, the, the uh, U.S. to China M&A situation uh, was where since mid-2018, foreign deal making has literally picked up and essentially has continued through the COVID situation. Um, and in 2019, uh, it reached a 10-year high of 35 billion U.S. dollars. Um, and the potential explanation was because of three factors. Um, first, the expectation is that Chinese middle-class consumption is still going to keep on, right? Uh, as the IMF has said, uh, the economic contraction due to COVID, uh, the effects of the COVID pandemic is going to be all around the world. But we are seeing that the Chinese middle class consumer seems to be emerging out of the COVID situation relatively okay. The Chinese consumption is coming back relatively quicker and more stable than some of the other developed countries. So multinationals would be looking at that and thinking, okay, China is expecting to maybe stay flat or grow 1% GDP, whereas for the rest of the world, we're looking at a down 4 to 5% GDP, which then impacts where your revenue is going to come from. So international companies are looking at potentially putting more of their investments into China. The second reason uh, is because of policy liberalization. Um, we can't go into that because of timing here, but you are seeing that China is working relatively hard to open some of their industry uh, to foreign investments. For example, this happened before the COVID situation, but China was trying to reform its finance industry and declaring that they're willing to open it back up to international investors for international investors to hold either a majority share or uh, a, a kind of 100% ownership of the financial firms. So you do see uh, a lot of firms that are acquiring their local joint venture. So for example, JP Morgan acquired its local uh, mutual fund joint venture for an estimated $1 billion, right? Um, uh, Volkswagen uh, announced that it would take control of its joint venture with Anhui Jianghui uh, Automotive uh, Group for $1.1 billion. So under those circumstances, you're not having foreign multinationals just go in and willy-nilly buy anything they see, they're actually buying their local subsidiary that previously they were only allowed to own uh, a minor portion of. But now, because of regulatory loosening, they're able to then go in and say, look, I want all of it, or I want majority control. Um, and the third is, strangely enough, Chinese companies are starting to mature, whereby 
they have the latest technology. Um, for example, AI, for example, payment technology, um, where, where retail payment technology in China is much ahead uh, than some of the retail developments in US. Think of WeChat Pay versus Apple Pay. Um, the, the, because of the amount of usage uh, by uh, Chinese consumers, they were able to iterate much quicker. Uh, and so there's technology that is worth having um, in some of these Chinese companies that multinational companies are looking at and saying, hey, I, I might want to, instead of developing it myself, I might want to go in and actually acquire the company. So, so M&A trends are much more interesting this time around than the 08-09 situation. Lisa, yes, thank you for that that overview. Really appreciate it. Gil, I'm going to put you on the spot now and ask you, what do you think what impact do you think COVID-19 has had on the picture that 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 Lisa has painted for us? Well, it's an interesting question because obviously a lot of what has happened would have happened irrespective of COVID-19. But it's also easy to identify some elements of COVID-19's impact. Uh, certainly the most obvious and immediate that we see with any COVID-19 impact is travel uh, and uh, the inability to travel. Its impact on deal making is going is is obviously a factor and a significant factor that's going to continue to be a challenge, particularly when we're looking at already difficult economics. The economic uncertainty itself, uh, COVID-19 has, uh, has basically put a lot of uh, the world into a economic slowdown. I won't use economist terms because I'd misuse it. But the, sh the short answer is we have an immediate economic challenge at the moment. And there's a growing recognition that the world is changing. But uh, in what ways, short-term, medium-term, long-term, it's less clear, and there's a lot of room for different interpretations. Uncertainty will always create a situation where investments and deal-making will decline while people try to assess strategies. There's one issue that Lisa talks to me about a lot, which, she's, uh, which is global supply chain reorganization, that there's a growing recognition that just-in-time global supply has not really worked uh, in this environment and that people are now looking to uh, decentralize. She calls it balkanization. I like that term. But uh, they're looking to decentralize their supply chain reorganization, bring the supply chain closer so that not everyone is looking to bring supplies from halfway around the world. And last, I would say that there's a long-term trend I personally am concerned about when I look at COVID-19, because this kind of circumstance uh, leads to long-term isolationist trends. We've, we've spent the better part of several decades li listening to globalization. We're now looking at prospects of a more, of more limited travel for a period of time, a, a more vocal isolationist trend, uh, and an increased competitiveness between regions instead of, instead of a global outlook. Now, 
I've just gotten you depressed. The other side of this is quite easy. There are plenty of opportunities. For those with the right risk appetite, what you have are opportunities to supply these new, these new uh, decentralized demands. You have opportunities to pick up uh, markets, competitors, and territories that perhaps improve prices. And disruption is sometimes uh, an innovative force. Gil, thank, thanks for that. I'm curious your thoughts about the coming presidential election, which is only a, sh- a few short months from now. Of course, we have an administration that has very definite views on U.S.-China trade relations. And I'm wondering if companies might wait for the outcome of the election before uh, making investments, um, either you know, either China Chinese companies or U.S. companies. Um, just love your thoughts on that. First, I just want to quickly note that as much as this administration has been vocal on this point, the tensions between the U.S. and China have been around for a bit. Uh, There's always been the understanding that there are these difficulties. What's always been the problem, and frankly still remains the problem, is what's, what's the solution to these problems? Now, I think as a practical matter, anytime there's a significant presidential election, uh, companies tend to hold off on decisions. Uh, uh, I think, uh, and countries tend to hold off on decisions. I think we all, uh, those of us old enough, certainly remember the Iranian hostage crisis. And even though it was fully resolved, the Iranians did not end the hostage crisis till President Carter left office. Sometimes relationships get stressed that way. The uh, So I do expect that there will be some impact on resolving things. Uh, that said, this economy has created a lot of issues, too. So I don't think that a lot of companies are content simply waiting. They may not focus on the U.S.-China aspect, but they're going to focus on a lot of other solutions uh, and a lot of other ways to heat up their economic activity. Uh, Lisa, I'm curious your thoughts specifically on the U.S.-China relationship. Sure, Gil. Um, I look at it in two aspects. Um, on one hand, the COVID-19 uh, situation or pandemic has demonstrated a very pressing need for adjustments in supply chains. And Given the current situation uh, and the tensions between the two countries, I don't think countries are going to expect the tension to ratchet down very significantly, regardless of who gets elected in the election in November. So I think for supply chain adjustments, um, that trend has happened for five years and will continue to happen, and COVID-19 merely accelerates it. Um, For investment trends, uh, we are seeing a lot more hesitation um, due to a multitude of of issues. Uh, And as you say, it basically boils down to uncertainty, right? So COVID-19 and the business environment is one uncertainty, and the and the uh, presidential election is another uncertainty. It just adds to the uncertainty. Um, as for uh, whether I think that kind of one one president is going to be better than 
another president uh, as between President Trump and a potential President Biden, um, I think that a potential President Biden would actually ratchet down some of the rhetoric because you see currently uh, that there's a lot more saber rattling and a lot more, shall we say, impoliteness uh, on both sides, right? Um, whereby there's a lot of, shall we say, news headlines that is indicating that there's a personal tension as well as a country-to-country -country tension. Um, I think we might go back, if we have a President Biden, to more of a kind of civil statesman relationship. But the underlying tension is still going to be ongoing. And there is commentary coming out of China right now, whereby the Chinese seem to be indicating, or at least thinking, that President Biden would have a higher ability of drawing on uh, and coalescing uh, the powers of the alliance of the U.S., uh, whereas President Trump would have lesser capability. And so there's commentary saying that the Chinese would actually prefer President Trump to have four more years, regardless of how chaotic that, that would be. Um, so I think high levels of uncertainty, um, the rhetoric might change, but the underlying issues will not be going away either way. Lisa, thank you so much. And, and Gil, thank you as well for that, that incredible survey of, of where things stand with these two powerhouse countries. I feel like we could talk for at least several more hours. And um, But I'm, I'm conscious of time. So with that, Gil, I'm going to turn it back to you. Well, thank you, Nathan. And thank you, Lisa. And thank you to our listeners for joining to our COVID-19 podcast series. Next week's webinar and podcast will move back to the corporate world with a look uh, into the uh, recent trends in equity and debt buyback transactions that we've seen here in the U.S. As a reminder, you can find our podcasts, webinars, and other content at hanesboon.com. That's H-A-Y-N-E-S-B-O-O-N-E.com. Please also feel free to reach out to me or to Nathan Koppel if you have any suggestions for further podcast topics. Take care all and good night.